Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Paddle Pod, your weekly podcast co- covering professional paddle presented by Hugo and Gons. Episode eight, I believe. And if I'm not mistaken, this might be the first episode that we cover where there has not been some uh, World Paddle Tour tournament or Premier Paddle tournament. But I think there is still plenty to talk about. Yep. Very excited to be here, Gons, as always. You're indeed very right. First week, well, obviously we didn't have a World Paddle Tour tournament last week, which was a shame. I missed it a lot personally. But luckily, the World Paddle League was up and running, uh, first edition. And, well, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was a, a great kind of show for paddle and for people that don't follow it regularly. And even for people who follow it regularly, just a great show and exhibition and some very interesting and competitive games so yeah that'll be one of the, the topics that we discuss today won't it? for sure yeah i think uh it might be good for for listeners to to get an introduction to it so i don't know if you want to take that away hugo of course of course i'll, I'll attempt to explain the structure because to be fair as i say it's very innovative and not much like other World Paddle Tour tournaments and Premier Paddle tournaments. So I'll jump straight into it. Essentially, it was so it involved four teams. Each team had the name of an animal. <laughs> so one was called the Jaguars, another one was called the Cheetahs, and then a couple of other names that I can't remember right now. But you can get the gist of it. And so the first round of the tournament was around Robin. So group stage and everyone played everyone. So each team had to play three matches, given that there were four teams. And each match was essentially composed of four sets. And each set was played by a different pair. So each team was made up of eight players, four male, four female. And so each set of each match was played by a different pair. So one of the pairs was a male pair. The, another mm, set was played by a female pair. Another set was played by a mixed pair, so male a man and a, and a woman. And then finally, the other set was played by a male, but one of the kind of stars of paddle, so say Deo Ruiz, with a local up-and-coming paddle player. So actually a really interesting format, and essentially the outcome of each match was determined by the sum of the games won by each team. So for example, a score could be 25 games to 17 games. And yeah, so that would be the summary. The teams that made uh, the final were the top two teams. So the, the t- two teams that had the most games after the group stage. And it was the Jaguars, if I'm not mistaken, that won. And the team was made up of Franco Stubasuk, Sanyo, Gutierrez, Momo Gonzalez, and then female players with Gemma Triay, Carolina Navarro. And well, actually... It was Alejandra Salazar, who is, as we all know now, out injured for a few weeks. This was the last tournament or last exhibition game that she was going to play prior to her injury. So obviously a very good team. And to be fair, my money would have been on them prior to the tournament. It's easy to say now. (laughs) But yeah, as I said before, really interesting kind of format. Some really, really good matches. One thing that I really enjoyed and I partic- I thought it was particularly interesting was it that 
it was the first time I saw two lefties play together because Coelho and Alex Reith were on the same team and they actually played one of the matches together. And I thought that was really interesting. I didn't know. I don't know whether you had a chance to watch that game, Gons, or, or any yeah, of the was, game, really. I was going to say that was probably one of the highlights for me as well because it was the first time I've ever seen two lefties, lefties play, play on the same team. And I was also interested in seeing which one was actually going to, to play on the right side. Uh, sorry, on, on the left side, which is, the, I guess, the more unnatural position for, for a lefty to play at. Because um, I haven't even seen, even in, in, you know, if you go to your local paddle club, you don't even see left players play on the, on the left side, which is quite surprising. They all straight, straight away go, go to the right side. Um, exactly. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite interesting. I'd actually love to see if at any point uh, there is like a left-sided or a left-handed player that, that you know, plays on the left side, if that ever comes to fruition at all at the, you know, the professional level. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, I think it was a, it was a very, nice, um, very nice exhibition, as you mentioned. Uh, very, very well explained there. One thing that I, I, I find quite funny is the scoring system. Like, I'm just very curious as to why they, they went for games instead of just, you know, counting the, the sets. But um, in any case, I think it's just, uh, you know, I think this leads nicely into one of the topics that we want to discuss, which is sort of, uh, you know, the, the investment that, that's going into Paddle, the fact that, you know, this was played in Dubai and obviously Paddle is, is growing massively in the Middle East and how there's a lot of investment in it, you know, not only, uh, and a lot of brands are, are, are investing in it and not just like sport or paddle specific brands, but you've got like other brands that are getting into the sport as well that are not necessarily, you know, sport focused. Like, for example, Hugo Boss, you know, we've recently seen them sponsoring the Vienna Open, um, which is quite interesting. I think there was also like a very recent news as well of Cristiano Ronaldo advertising paddle in, in Singapore and, and there's even like some clips of him playing. So it's just a, it's just a very, you know, it's a very interesting period for the sport in general. And I think this exhibition match or, or sort of tournament just adds, I guess, more fuel to the fire of like, you know, what is paddle and how much is growing. I completely agree. I think it's, it's great for paddle to see this sort of investment. I think looking at, Kind of the paddle sponsorship market, if that makes any sense. Um, just for the for the viewers to know, until very recently, I actually worked in sports sponsorship, so I know I know the market relatively well. And paddle is very much in its infancy stage, or paddle sponsorship as it is. At the end of the day, brands don't require a massive amount of investment to sponsor paddle events and paddle tournaments and even players, because until very recently, not many people watched paddle or even knew about paddle to be honest and traditionally given that the world paddle tour was only really followed and paddle generally was only really followed in spain and some spanish-speaking countries in south america like obviously argentina then the majority of brands that were involved in paddle and sponsored paddle were brands targeting spain and latin america but now that's completely changed exactly how you highlighted a few Moments ago, we've seen Hugo Boss have the naming rights of the Vienna Open this season at the World Paddle Tour. And we also saw a number of brands sponsor this week's 
World Paddle League, like for example, Emirates NBD, which I don't know how many of you know about them, but they're one of the biggest banks and financial services brands out in the Middle East, which clearly shows that paddle's really starting to drive more and more eyeballs and more attention. And that's why brands are seeing it as a good return on investment to be sponsoring paddle. For example, I'm just thinking of another brand that recently entered the paddle world, and that's Qatar Airways. Obviously, we've seen them sponsor a wide variety of sports, such as football and Lionel Messi, if I'm not mistaken. But this season, they're sponsoring Agustin Tapia and Arturo Coelho. Great shout from them. They've been sponsoring them since right from the start. And, well, that must have, they, they must think that's a, big, that's a big plus, and they did that really well. So, yeah, I just think it's great for Paddle. At the end of the day, the more investment we see on behalf of brands and companies, then that's just going to drive more revenue and ultimately make the sport more professional. And more importantly, I think the main point that this will will kind of help is until very recently, it was only maybe the top 10, top 15 Paddle players that could make a living out of Paddle. But the more brands that invest in paddle and the more money that the sport starts driving, then the more players will be able to live from paddle exclusively and become paddle, exclusively paddle professionals, if that makes sense, which I think is really important if the sport wants to continue to grow and at one, one day they want to become Olympic. So I think it's the right, well, definitely a step in the right direction. It's great to see. Yeah, for sure. I think if, if paddle wants to grow, you know, as, as much as, for example, a sport like tennis is done, then it needs this sort of investment. So then, you know, professionals mm-hmm. or, you know, up, the up and coming talent are like, yeah, I want to dedicate my life to to play paddle. Um, I can't remember the case, but I, I swear I've seen recently a, a young Spanish uh, female player that actually was really close to becoming professional. And uh, she said instead that she wanted to go, like she had to stop and she had to to study uh, or, or she decided to study instead of like going the, the professional route. And I'm not sure, but I think then she's gone back into paddle um, and potentially entered some world paddle tour draws. But um, so, yeah, that just shows that, you know, it's, as you mentioned, it's still very much in its infancy. But, you know, all this investment, all this visibility, all this exposure it's uh, it is really great. Uh, I also remember hearing, I think this was Pincho who said a couple of months ago that, you know, until very recent, only like the, well, well now basically, I think the top 50 are able to make a living out of paddle, um, which essentially the top 50 is basically those that just make the main draw um, every, basically at every tournament or, or quite regularly. So it's it's great to see that. But there's still, you know, a long way to go. I think uh, something very interesting that you mentioned there as well was the fact that most brands that sort of have invested in paddle and, you know, have a long legacy in paddle are, are those that are mainly based in Spain or, or Spanish-speaking countries. So I'm thinking mostly about, for example, paddle rackets. You know, you've got your classic brands such as Knox, Bullpadel, uh, Barleon, Starvi, which are all sort of like Spain-based, but now we've seen also, you know, huge brands that are perhaps from other racket sports 
such as tennis, be involved in paddle and they're not Spanish-based. So head, obviously, is a massive one that, you know, Arturo Coelho, and they've also got as well um, Aranza, Aranza Sanchez and Paula Jose Maria, both number one on the, on the women's side. Uh, I saw recently as well Technifiber, you know, who, who are the, the, the sort of racket sponsors of Medvedev and, and Igas Viatek on, on, on the tennis side. Now they've jumped into paddle, obviously Adidas as well. Uh, they've got a you know series of, of, of very good players on their roster, such as Ale Alan and Alex Reith. So it's still, it's great to see, to see that. And, um, and I think one, one little nuance or, or even like a better, um, I, I guess like, Another reason why we'll continue to to evolve, and specifically maybe more related to the players, and why I think paddle is maybe different to to other sports in this sense, is that I see players are really active on social media, and they are very much willing to. They're just very approachable. Now I don't know if that's because it's still very early stage and you know, you can basically go to a world paddle tour event and you'll see the players there. They might not like have this massive like security barrier, whereas in, in, in other in other sports it happens. But I almost feel like because these players have been born into sort of, you know, this social media age, this digital age, they're 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 taking that into 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 account and they're using that as well to develop their own personal brand. Now will it stay like this in the future when perhaps like I don't know, Koya and Tapia both have like 10 million followers on, on Instagram and Twitter. Maybe not, <laughs> but, but, but at least I have this feeling of like just players are so accessible, which, you know, helps their brand as well, I guess. And yeah, just further, you know, adds to, to the visibility of the sport. I think, I could, yeah, it's a great point. And I, I think, as you just mentioned briefly, I think the main reason behind that is probably the fact that I think Paquito might may be the player that's got the most followers and he's got about 500k followers. When you, prepare, you compare that to footballers, for example, who have millions of followers and even the ones that, that aren't that famous. I mean, we know them because we're football freaks and sport freaks, but the average person doesn't. So I think paddle players, firstly, they don't have that many followers. So they have the opportunity to engage with their fans more. But I also think the other side of the story is given that not that many of them can make a living from paddle and the fact that paddle right now doesn't generate as much money for professional paddle players compared to other sports, obviously like football, F1, American football that are traditional sports and drive millions in in revenue and have done for many, many years. Paddle players need to really be engaged and use social media as a platform to well basically to get more eyeballs and i actually there's a few people i know that don't follow paddle actively but know about paquito and watch some random points on instagram and that's basically all they know about paddle (laughs) they think it's a really fun sport and they watch these amazing points and that's about as much as they do so i think social media is as you just mentioned being pivotal for paddle and yeah i just hope it continues to drive more and more eyeballs to the sport because that's only going to make paddle a more global sport a more professional sport and ultimately well 
a bigger sport. So yeah, yeah. I think I think we will say we we will see. Sorry, a big change as well in twenty twenty four once both the tours are consolidated into one. I think especially if the tour will be owned by, you know, the the owners of Premier Paddle, which is essentially Qatar, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think they'll they'll it's going to be they'll professionalize it a lot more and uh, there's even like you know some quotes from players and stuff like sort of giving a bit of insight between the differences between a premier paddle tournament and a world paddle tour tournament and they all say basically that the premier paddle tour tournament is you know way better in terms of how it's organized way more professional way more amenities all these different things so i think that investment that you know has essentially that that will be in 2024 because you know qatar is, is sort of backing paddle i think uh will be will be massive indeed and just to to emphasize the fact that or just show viewers and prove to viewers how big paddle is becoming i don't know how many people know this but premier paddle was set up and driven by nasser al-khalifi for those of you who don't know him he is the president of Paris Saint-Germain, so the French football team. And I think this shows, well, how important Paddle is. He was actually an ex-professional tennis player. He didn't go that far, but I think he was ranked within the top two or 300 players in the world at one point. So obviously a very good player, but he's clearly been bitten by the Paddle worm and he's a Paddle fan, much like we are. So yeah, I think that just proves how many different eyeballs and how many big personalities are being attracted by the world of paddle. And it's just great to see. I'm really, really happy about it. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think, well, this leads us nicely to, to our second topic that we wanted to discuss in this episode, uh, talking about players and how accessible they are. Uh, one of the, the good things about that is that they give a lot of interviews. And uh, the most recent Indeed. one to to give an interview and and frankly open open almost his heart, you know, like felt like he was very just very candid. Uh, it was Martin Dineno who who spoke to Veinte Diez. Um, they are a, a a YouTube channel and they also run a Twitter page. I think they're part of like a bigger um, newspaper outlet in in Argentina. But they're they're great guys over there and they. Uh, they managed to interview quite a bit of of, of, power, of professional power players, and this time they had the chance to speak to Martin Dineno. Um, and we sort of wanted to talk about some of the things that that they discussed because um, Martin was was very open and uh, gave us uh, a lot of insights into into how the season is going. And I think the first thing maybe that I want to discuss with with you, Hugo, is because we've talked about this in in these episodes is just. I mean, we can just go quickly over it. Obviously, don't want to bore the listeners uh, a lot, but um, it's just how also Martin sort of they they asked they asked them, um, you know, what do you think of 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 like the right sided players? And um, you know, there was always like a clear weakness of Martin. You know, his, his he wasn't aggressive enough, and all of these things and. And sort of they asked him, like, what do you think? Like, it's clearly we've seen that this is a shot that you've improved and you've been working on, just being more aggressive, the smash, the attacking volleys. 
and uh, and yeah, he just gave a very very honest answer where he said nowadays you just have to be a a very complete player no matter which side of the of the court you play on because uh, the game has evolved. The game is really fast now, and um, and uh, he's he realized that that was like a massive weakness of his, and it's just something that he needed to to improve on. Yeah, indeed, it was a great interview, and I I love listening to and hearing Martin's interviews, post match speeches because he's always so open, and he's actually just such a nice guy. But yeah. it was a really really good interview and gave us a lot of insights, and one of them is exactly that. He pointed to what we've been talking about quite a bit in our podcasts, which is how much the forehand player has evolved over the years, and particularly over the last two, three years, I'd say. Obviously, he was saying that with looking at Goya and Tapia, they're both equally as aggressive, equally as good in the air, and it was the same with Galan and Lebron, and it was the same with Lebron and Paquito, when they played together before Leveron's recent partnership with Alan, which shows that the last three number one seeded and ranked pairs have had two very aggressive, almost equally as aggressive players. So, well, Martin has said that he's been working on his, this, the attacking side of his game extensively, and we've actually been saying that he's improved that a lot, and he's actually contributing to finishing the points a lot and well at least in my opinion I've been surprised by how much he's contributed to that and yeah I think I'd almost say that forehand players have to be more complete than backhand players if that makes any sense he almost hinted at that because but what I mean by it and why I'm saying that is because forehand players nowadays are as we've just said required to finish points win points be aggressive have a good smash but they're also required to be really fit and be able to maintain points and keep them going and have very limited unforced errors, which perhaps isn't asked of backhand players. So, yeah, it, it almost feels like forehand players have to be more complete, if that makes any sense, which is a big change compared to what it was a few years ago where it was almost really seen as backhand players with the stars and forehand players were there just to kind of accompany them through the good times. Um, but yeah, that was that was one side of the interview that we wanted to discuss and just mention, given that we'd spoken about forehand versus backhand players very recently. But I think the other side that we wanted to touch on was, well, Martin was obviously asked about Cuellan Tapia and whether he considered, well, basically how he felt he was doing this season, whether he thought his partnership with Frank Rostovasuk was being a success. And he said it was being super successful and he was really, really happy with it. And well, I completely agree, but he basically said that... I'm glad he's said that in a way. Yeah, completely. I'm super happy because they're having a sensational season. I think bar losing to Goya and Dabia, they've only lost to Sanyo and Momo twice. Maybe that's it. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think it's something like that which shows that they're a step above everyone else apart from Guayu and Dabia, as we've said many times. But uh, yeah, I was just really happy to hear him say that. And he was speaking and, and he was mentioning about how he deals with the fact that 
they haven't beaten Goya and Dabia in seven, eight, nine games in a row. And he was saying, he was talking about the mental side of it. And he was saying that the problem with, well, facing Goya and Dabia is that once they've won two tournaments, three tournaments, four tournaments in a row, and you basically see that they're winning every single tournament, then that gets in your head and you start thinking that they're invincible. And I was really interested and surprised that he'd say this so openly because I would definitely feel that way. But I just didn't expect him to say that. What did you, what did you think, Gons? Yeah, I almost, uh, I don't know if, the, if there was any sort of like uh, intention behind that. Probably not, uh, knowing how Martin is and he's just like so, so, so open. Um, it's funny, and a lot of the... A lot of times in the interview, he says when he's speaking about something that someone told me, he's like, oh, guys, this guy's going to kill me. Uh, but then he says it anyway. Um, <laughs> that was just a little little side note. But uh, going back to to the main point around the the mental, I guess, edge that sort of uh, Coelho and, and Tapia have now, um, it's, uh, it's very interesting because um, it's something that it might not people might not think about it or or realize but i think in a matter of just very small amount of days we've had like two clear cases of that and the other is i'm going to go back to tennis again and uh, carlos alcaraz and novak djokovic um who were carlos alcaraz very openly admitted that he had to pull out well he didn't pull out in the, of the game at the end but that he had cramps which didn't let him play because how nervous he was and the reason why he was so nervous is because in the press conference, he said that he had Novak Djokovic in front and that uh, any player can say otherwise, but they will be lying that when you have Novak Djokovic in front, you are scared and you are nervous. Um, so I think translating that into into sort of like what Martin just recently said and, and Paddle, I guess it's sort of that feeling that, you know, players have. And this happens, I think, to... To any player as well when no matter the level and no matter who you're playing against like if you know that the opposition is is very good and I can imagine in their case even more that as you've mentioned they you know they've won one two three four five tournaments in a row and you know 40 games in a row then there's obviously that mental edge or that insecurity that they it's, it's sort of like a and Martin spoke about it there's two effects right there's the effect from Koyo and Tapia, who themselves, they think they're invincible. And then there's also the effect of um, Martin, well, or, or the, the, I guess the players are the, the opposition of Koyo and Tapia, who are thinking like, you know, damn, I'm playing against Koyo and Tapia and they haven't lost. So it's almost like a, a double effect. And, um, and I think it's it's very interesting because I don't know from from a mental standpoint how do you um, how do you I guess beat that I, in a way Martin was saying that they are very much you know they they try not to think about it too much and there's obviously specific things that they work on in training um, specific shots uh, that for example say after one tournament they lose against them then they go back the next week and in the couple of days of training that they have in between tournaments, they will work on something specific to change. But, you know, he does sort of acknowledge that there's no, <laughs> he doesn't have a solution because if, uh, if he did, then probably would have applied it. 
Um, exactly. And he actually said, if someone knows a solution, please tell me. So, yeah, exactly. yeah very funny, very funny guy. And to be honest, just, just a couple of points that I wanted to mention to kind of move on from this topic and from the interview, which just to emphasize was, was so good and you should all watch it because the the guys at NDF are just great. And, and they basically, through their questions, they drive so many insights that, yeah, it's great to, to watch and listen to as a paddle fan. But Martin was actually mentioning that the way they try to beat Guayan Tapia is focusing on their game. And he said that the way they manage to the, the best games that they've played against them is when they stick to the plan and to what they've analysed outside of the matches. Because once they start drifting away and when they get tired and they just play shots out of the blue, i.e. not following a specific plan, that's when it goes all wrong. So say, for example, they analyse that when they play a lob to Tapia's backhand, they win more points because he can't be as attacking. When they start playing lobs to Tapia's forehand that's when they should start coming. So it was really interesting to listen to him talking about how much they use analysis and how much they analyze the game and Goya and Dabia during training sessions and after tournaments. And he was thanking the the team behind him and Franco because he says that they help them so much and they're very much under the radar. So that was that was kind of the main point I just wanted to emphasize because I thought it was it was really interesting yeah but, yeah a great interview yeah I think you've touched on a great point there because uh, and I think this is somewhat related at, at some point in the interview as well he said that they they need to focus like they need to realize what they are and what they're not as a pair and play to their strengths so they they both know that they're not out and out stri- you know strikers of the balls um, aggressive, can sort of smash the ball from behind the line like Tapian Coelho do, right? That's not their game. So I think that's very important to, to realize, and not only just at their level, at any level, right? Any, any, any person that, that goes to the paddle court needs to realize what their you know, weaknesses and what their strengths are and, and play to those, like play to those strengths. Don't pretend something that, that you're not because then that's when you start you know, doing as you said, like going out of the plan and doing things that you're not in like comfortable with. And, uh, you know, it, it just could potentially go, go very wrong. Most likely it will go very wrong. Exactly. And we've said it a lot. Uh, at least I talk about it a lot with you, but at the end of the day, the key thing in paddle is keep the ball in play. And it sounds really stupid, but one of the reasons why Fernando Velasterin has become the goat is because his the number of unforced errors he makes is so small. And he just keeps pushing and keeps playing that bandeja that, and Bibora that potentially aren't as powerful and aren't as effective. Well, not effective, but aren't as attacking and, and aggressive as Galans or Paquitos or Coellos. But throughout the years, he's just limited the number of unforced errors that he makes and forced rivals to make the mistakes themselves. So, yeah, I think that's a key point for players that are starting to play paddle. And to be honest, anyone who's involved in the paddle world is one of the tips I kind of keep in mind is keep the ball in play because the more unforced errors you make, the more likely it is that you'll drive yourself out of the game and end up losing the match. But exactly. I think 
it could be time for the paddleboard race. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, I think we're just going to have to well, recount the points from last time because we didn't do it in, in last episode. And basically, last uh, well, last tournament was Marbella. And uh, you were going into that tournament, Hugo, with 21 points. And I was going into that tournament with 17 points. So you were still ahead, four-point lead. But uh, you're, we're leaving Marbella, uh, Hugo, with 24 points and myself with 21 points as um, I cut the distance just by one point. So now it's a three-point lead for Hugo. So we definitely have a race in our hands and hopefully I can make up some ground in, in this French Open. Just a quick one on, on Marbella. It was basically, well, it was a very, quite a weird tournament because in the end, um, well, Momo and Sanyo made the final, which none of us predicted and that sort of changed everything. I did think they would make the, sem- the semis um, and they did. But uh, but yeah, you, Hugo, you, you're, you sort of fell in, uh, foolish, uh, you're a bit foolish in believing in Ruiz Tello, which let's see if you're gonna pay, <laughs> they're gonna pay for 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 their loss in this week's uh, episode when you don't choose them. Um, but yeah, let's get let's get into it. Uh, so what are your what are your uh semi final bets for the French Open? Here, here they come, and yeah, just to emphasize that Chase is definitely on three points is nothing. So I'm starting to get nervous. Squeaky bum time, as they say. But yes, I am going to go slightly boring in terms of my shouts, just because I think that's how it's going to go. I think the first semi-final will be Stubandineno against Momo Ansaño. And I think the second semi-final will be Chingoto and Paquito against Galan Ansan. I was going to go for Ruiz Antello. But I will not be making that mistake again. This will probably come back and bite me, and they will win this time and make the semis. But hey, these are my shouts. I think the outcomes of the semi-finals will be two sets to love for Stupandineno against Momo and Sanyo. And I think the outcome of the second semi-final will be two sets to one for Chingoto and Paquito against Galan And then in the final, I think Stupandineno will win Two sets to love against Paquito and Chingoto. Gons, over to you. Nice. So I'm going to go with the exact same players uh, in the semifinals. So that would be Stupadineno, uh, Momo Ansaño. And then on the other semifinal, it would be uh, Chingoto Navarro against Galan and Sanz. Now I am going to go different in terms of the scores and uh, the winners. I think in the first semi-final, Stupandineno win, but uh, three sets. Uh, and then in the second semi-final, I actually think Galan and Sant win in three. Now, the reason for this is Galan and Sant have both not played in the World Paddle League. Uh, they've had a week of rest and they had, I'm guessing, a week of training, whereas Chingoto and Navarro have both played in the World Paddle League and you know potentially that could take a toll. So let's see. But then in the final, I'm going to go with uh, Stupa, Dineno, Galan, Sanz. And I think Stupa and Dineno will win that in three sets. Wow. So two three-set matches for Stupa and Dineno in their journey to conquer the French Open. To be fair, I think they're really good shouts. That could definitely happen. I was torn 
whether to go with Chingoto and Paquito or to go with Galan and Samp. I just felt that if they won the previous match, two sets of love, and also Chingoto's level recently has been through the roof. That's basically edged me and egged me on to going for Chingoto and Paquito. But I agree, Galan and Samp, well, they played... Sanz played such a good tournament with Coqui Nieto a few weeks back. And I just feel that with Galan, the roof can only be higher. So we'll see. A great tournament's in our hands. And I'm very excited that the World Battle Tour is back. Indeed. So I think that's it for today's episode. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and, and listening. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. They'll be in sort of the description of, of the podcast and on our Spotify and uh, yeah, uh, everyone, hope everyone has a, has a great week of paddle. And uh, thanks always for joining me, Hugo. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Gons, for having me. Please watch the tournament because I'm sure it's going to be as good as all the others have been this season. It's been such a good season. And all the best, guys. See you very soon.